This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, host of the streaming circuit, co-host of our monthly MCU series, co-host of the soon-to-be-releasing Revisionist Almanac, and the now fifth member of our five-timers club, Adam Hitchcock. Put your shirt back on. <laughs> a lot of applause there. Need a, need some booze in there. I need to feel the energy of the road crowd. Unfortunately, I don't have that on our soundtrack, but <laughs> we have now done Interstellar, Elf, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Dark Knight, and now we're covering Zodiac tonight. What has been your favorite episode so far? Oh, my God. I would say The Dark Knight. A foursome. You know, I've had many threesomes in my life, but it was my first foursome, so that was fun to be a part of. Yes, a certain devil's four-way. It was it was a special evening. Mm. And so I have certain item in front of me. This will be the hat going out to you very soon. I would assume that you don't want to give your home address on air. It's 182 Malibu Point, uh, or whatever Tony Stark's address is in Iron Man 3. You can send it right there. I think it might get returned. Yeah, well, you better send it out quick. I mean, we're about to get into some heavy Christmas uh, Christmas delays here with the mail, so I expect that to get out pretty quick. I'll have to give you my address uh, shortly here. And I would like to have a picture and see if we can put it up on our website. Me to take a picture? Yep, of the, you with a hat on. Okay, cool, yeah. I could, probably, I could probably do that for you. And I can already tell you right now, if that's what you're intending to do, we do not have the capacity to do that. Uh, we'll have to figure out something then. I'll send it to you, Dana. You can frame it in your office. It can just it can go on your... our social media. We could do it on Facebook. Yeah, for the for the five people who are listening to us who actually have Facebook anymore. <laughs> I mean, this is classic movies. I mean, I'm sure we have some older, gray-haired people listening to these episodes, and they're pretty much the only ones using Facebook at this point. I know. I don't even use Facebook because I find it boring. Yeah, I don't use Facebook either. And I'm about at my wit's end with X at this point, given Elon's uh, most recent issues. (laughs) Uh, Well, he's managed to absolutely run that thing into the ground. What an asshat. All right. Tonight, for our 191st episode, we revisit the true crime thriller Zodiac from 2007, directed by David Fincher, written by James Vanderbilt, music by David Shire, starring... Jake Gyllenhaal as Robert Graysmith, Mark Ruffalo as Inspector Dave Toskey, Robert Downey Jr. as Paul Avery, Anthony Edwards as Inspector Bill Armstrong, Brian Cox as Melvin Belli, Charles Fleischer as Bob Vaughn, Zach Greiner as Mel Nikolai, Philip Baker Hall as Sherwood Morrill, Elias Coteas as Sergeant Jack Mullinax, James LaGrosse as Detective George Bowert, Donald Logue as Captain Ken Narlo, John Carroll Lynch as Arthur Lee Allen, Dermot Mulroney as Captain Marty Lee, Chloe Savigny as Melanie Graysmith, John Terry as Charles Terrio, 
June Diane Raphael as Carol Toski, Sierra Moriarty as Darlene Farron, Adam Goldberg as Duffy Jennings, Tom Verica as Jim Dunbar, Lee Norris as Mike Majot, and Jimmy Simpson as the older Mike Majot. Recognition for this movie? Based on Zodiac and Zodiac Unmasked by Robert Graysmith, Zodiac was wide released on March 2nd, 2007. On a budget ranging from 65 to $85 million, Zodiac would make roughly $83 million at the global box office for the number 65 spot in 2007. Can any of you name any of the top five from 2007? It's a truly special list. <laughs> Ooh. Um, I'll just tell you, if you start guessing franchises, you'll hit one of them. Harry Potter, probably. Order of the Phoenix was number two for the year. Mission Impossible. Not that year, no, unfortunately. Oh. Are, they, are there any other franchises, or is it just... Oh, there's plenty of other franchises. So, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End was number one. Spider-Man 3 was in third. Shrek the third was fourth. Oh. Transformers, the first one, was fifth. Ratatouille was sixth, and I consider Pixar a franchise at a certain point. I Am Legend was seven. The Simpsons movie was eight. National Treasure Book of Secrets was nine. And 300 was 10. By the way, things that finished ahead of this movie at the global box office. Saw 4. Blades of Glory. The Game Plan. With Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Norbit. Oh, that is regrettable. (laughs) Charlie Wilson's War. Fred Claus and <laughs> Epic Movie all finished ahead of this. It's an eclectic Ugh. list. For number 65 on the year, you're, you betcha. Yeah. Oof. Critics were mostly enthusiastic about the film at the time. Only two 2007 films, No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood, appeared on more critics' top 10 lists than Zodiac, with the film also placing in the top 10 for both Sight and Sound and Empire magazines in 2007. However, due to haggling over the final cut of the film between Paramount and director David Fincher, the film was released after the normal window for award season attention and missed out on any Oscar nominations for that year. In a 2016 critics poll conducted by the BBC, Zodiac was voted the 12th greatest film of the 21st century. Zodiac currently holds a 90% rating on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 79 score on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we start every week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? This is the second time I've seen the movie. The first time was before we did the uh, first episode. Yes, back in season one. Thank you for bringing that up because I probably should have advertised on the front end. In the episode descriptions, you can find the link to our original episode on this as well as on the website. If you follow along with each of these episodes, they have a specific notation all of our individual episode notes are up on the website, ronnieduckinstudios.com backslash podcast, And you can find all of the original entries, the original episode up on there as well. Because right now we're probably not going to cover most of the same categories that we would otherwise. We're going to skip ahead and focus mostly on our rubric this evening and uh, regrade our scoring from the original episode. Adam, what's your relationship to this movie? 
I very much enjoy this movie. I'm uh, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm huge into the true crime world. I, I, I typically don't care about that. But this is one of them that I think is done really well. Uh, is is interesting enough, and it's got a really good cast. And before a lot of the cast kind of exploded, like there were some big names, but uh, I would say they got a lot bigger after this movie. And David Fincher is one of my favorite directors, so I, I very much enjoy this movie. And you actually bothered to go back and listen to our original episode, something I probably could never bring myself to do. What did you think? I did. Well, Sarah was a standout for sure, and Dana as well. And I just was there. <laughs> well, I actually, I actually have a question for you, Tom, Okay. Uh, based on this episode. And I think, Dana, you will appreciate this question. Oh, of course you will. Have you been getting it rubbed in anymore lately? Uh, Dana was very concerned about that in that pod. Have you been getting it rubbed in anymore? What? You, uh, you said something about uh, rubbing it in, and then Dana said, well, maybe you should get it rubbed in a little more often. <laughs> so I just wanted to know if you have, if that has been accomplished. No, unfortunately. It's been uh, quite, a, quite a long dry spell. Ah, uh, well, it must rain in the Sahara again someday. Uh, occasionally a blind squirrel finds a nut. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that might be part of your problem. It's singular. Only need one. Only need one. No, it was a good episode, though. It was a good episode. I, I enjoyed it. I listened to it twice, actually. Glutton for punishment. True. Always. Always. Oh, I suppose I should give my, my relationship to the movie. I think I remember watching this originally back for the first time, I want to say in high school. It was not a movie that, like, really spoke to me in any way. I'm, I'm not a huge true crime person. I don't listen to murder podcasts or anything else which is probably why uh, this show doesn't do as well as it could. Uh, we don't steer into some of those narrative form, true crime podcast types. But, I mean, being a Fincher film, obviously he's a preeminent director of the 20th century, even though I think a couple of his biggest and possibly best movies uh, are from the 90s yet. But he's on a short list along with Quentin Tarantino, maybe Steven Soderbergh, although that might be stretching a little bit, of certain small-time film directors or auteur directors from the 90s that I think still have enough recognition that anytime they put something out, film fans like us will always pay attention. And, Dad, I don't think you've watched Fincher's newest film yet, have you? I have not. Okay. I forget, Adam. Did you watch it already? The Killer? Yeah. Uh, I have not yet. It's on my to-do list here in the next uh, week. I might do it over the long holiday break here. I don't okay. Well, I really enjoyed it, and that's about all I can say but since neither of you have seen it. So what is this movie about? Well, I think it's about a man's obsession with finding the truth, even though uh, it, will, uh, it will ultimately, or it could cost him. It seems to be no real gain in it other than just his obsession, his personal obsession with figuring out who it is. Which I find very interesting. Kind of prideful, I guess. I certainly went along the same lines of obsession, but how much people that get involved in these types of worlds and given the fervor of true crime as I think we've had an explosion over the last decade or so, how much that really doesn't seem to actually like accomplish anything. Like there's interest in a lot of these cases, but 
how much of it actually moves the needle in one way or the other. I think it's fun for people to theorize and live in these worlds and hope that they can solve a puzzle that probably just doesn't have enough clues to put things together. But I don't think that for the most part, a lot of these cases have ended up changing. There's only been a couple of handfuls of uh, situations that I can name offhand that, you know, either a killer was caught after a long time or somebody's innocence was proved after a long time in prison or something. Yeah, I'd agree with that. This, this film is really three parts. It's the dedication and, and tenacity of a police officer doing the investigation. It's the story of a reporter using a event or tragedy for his own self-promotion to some extent uh, and his ability to perform and do his job. And then it's one man's obsession. The three of them combine to create the backdrop of this story. Ultimately, if we're talking about true crime, I would add in, the problem is with true crime is that it tries to solve things. Crime in itself never can be completely certain because even situations where there's eyewitness accounts, eyewitness accounts are some of the worst evidence that you can have in a criminal case. And the problem is, is that you can't because true crime situation would be where the evidence is put together and it's presented to a jury and there has to be a conviction. Most of the true crime stories either are cold cases where there's pieces that are missing or will never be completely resolved, or they already have convictions and you have to meet such a high burden of proof to overturn a conviction that it's almost impossible by use of a podcast to do that. So I've listened to several of them and I find some of them enjoyable for just kind of the backdrop and the stories involved, but I don't know if they're ever going to really accomplish much. Yeah. I think this movie does sum up like the true crime obsession really well, because most people that listen to those don't give a, uh, a bleep about whether the person's caught or, or stopping them from doing whatever they're doing. It does not matter at all. They're just obsessed with like the, the Scooby-Doo aspect of solving it. And Jake Gyllenhaal's character, I think maybe starts out like he wants to help stop this killer, but in the end, he doesn't care about, stopping him from killing anyone that is not the point of it at all it's just his obsession with i can solve this i i can be the person who's smart enough to do this that's his only motivation i really don't believe he cares at all about stopping any murders by the end so that ties in nicely that i think if i remember right during the original episode and you can correct me if i'm wrong adam but i thought we had a pretty good discussion on whether or not this is I wouldn't say responsible, but somewhat of a precursor, much in the way we talked about Stalag 17 last week, of kind of the true crime boom. Now, that's not to say that, again, it's directly responsible, because I don't think this movie finishing in the way that it did, number 65 for a particular year, would contribute to what eventually happened. I would point to a couple of other things, particularly like I would point to like serial or making a murderer as like really the tipping point on some of this stuff. But in the same way, this is somewhat prescient given the nature of how famous this case is and how much has been published, the material on it since it originally happened as to kind of where we're at socially 
with this being kind of its own entertainment field. So is this part of a larger group of true crime stories or did this at, at all contribute to where we're at now? I think it definitely contributed. I mean, it, it wasn't the first and, and you touched on that too. Like this isn't the origin story of the true crime genre, if you will, but I think it's one of the better ones I've ever seen in that genre. I mean, I think, I think this was like a marker of like, it ticked up a level of interest. And then I think another marker would be like, I forget the name of it exactly, the people versus OJ or something like when Netflix started doing the, we're going to make fictionalized shows about real events that happened with the OJ stuff. And there was another one too, I forget. Um, I think that was another boom. And that was probably the peak of it. And then you've got and now you've got shows like only murders in the building and uh, based on a true story. And now it's just completely taken off into its own thing. Where they're almost making parody off the backing of the true crime uh-huh. experience or entertainment genre. Yeah, that's like the final level, right, of popularity of a genre is when it starts making parodies of itself. It's like, okay, we've reached the apex of where this can go. Because I think you can't say this is responsible or like the originator of true crime. There are just too many other things, even in the same decade that came before it. But this is the one that's really focused on like a cold case, the obsession of trying to piece things together, of trying to solve something that's kind of dormant. And going back to it repeatedly over years and years and years, spent time trying to put all these extraneous extra pieces together. I don't remember too many other cases or other films or TV shows that really went to that extreme. Yeah, this made it cool. Like the mystery and the suspense. Yeah, I will correct you to some extent. This is not the originator of this type of film. The originator was Helter Skelter, which was a movie that ultimately described the whole path and uh, the circumstances behind the Tate LaBianca murders with the Manson family. I think that film was very popular in the 70s when it was released, and I think that film did more to legitimize films about criminal activity and criminal events, and specifically horrendous crimes and murders. Well, I mean, you could also look at, I wouldn't say it's in the same vein as a true crime exactly, but it is uh, looking at a criminal past in like Bonnie and Clyde is along the same lines at least. It's telling the true story supposedly, or at least a slightly fictionalized version of some real people who were criminals. And for that matter, something like Anatomy of a Murder is, I think, based upon, or at least structurally based upon real events, if I remember right. So there are pre-existing other true story fictionalized versions that have been used for entertainment. In, in no way am I trying to imply this is the first of that time. But I do think that this is slightly different in tone and how it's structurally set up, even though it's dealing with a fairly popular, well-known criminal story, serial killer story. It probably does have some impacts because if I remember right, Serial came out in 2010 or 2011. That sounds about right. I remember we had a, an employee who just was absolutely fascinated by the uh, show and kept just wanting to talk about it. And unfortunately, most of us were not interested in it. And so 
you had difficulty finding anybody to talk to about it. <laughs> I'm just trying to look up when it actually came out. So season one first aired in 2014. And I think that is about the same time as Making of a Murderer. Yeah, I did watch that. But then again, the reason I watched that in part was that so many of the people involved in that, especially from the Department of Criminal Investigation from the Attorney General's office, I knew those officers. Well, yeah, because it was from Wisconsin. Shout out, Wisconsin. Yes, I have very very pointed opinions about some of them. Speaking of Wisconsin, are you two doing all right? I mean, you lost Craig Council as manager. Oh, he can go fuck himself. Packers are about to get just slaughtered tomorrow on Turkey Day in front of the nation, and the Bucks are just taking it on the chin tonight against the Celtics. I mean, where are you guys at? Are you okay? Oh, we're fine. I think we're going to dig more into movies for about the next year or so. There you go. We just needed a holiday from all of the winning we'd been doing. It, we got sure. too accustomed to it. So we're taking a step back so that we develop new appreciation when it starts happening again. Healthy, healthy mindset there. Yeah, you need a little humility every so often so as not to be too entitled. True. The Brewers have had it. The Brewers have been having it pretty good lately. I think you did you did need to take a step back. That's fair. For what the expectations of a small market team like that are, yeah, they actually have been. They've won the division title like five out of the last six years or something like that. And the step back for the Brewers isn't going to be very far because they got a ton of talent in the in the uh in double and triple A that's gonna be up here shortly. I only care when they're actually good, so it really doesn't, you know, miff me if they're not. One of those fans. Uh, Yeah, well. Pretty much. uh, I'm not a big baseball guy. That's that's too bad. Sad to hear. You knew that. Yeah. I mean, I talk to you just about every day. True. That's true. That's true. Go Jordan Love. It'd be nice, but. By the way, the Packers will cover the spread tomorrow. What is it, like 40? Uh, seven, seven and, and a half. half. No, they will not. Oh yeah, that's going to be a rough one. Nope. I would, I would start the drinking early tomorrow if I were you guys. Okay, I'll have some with some coffee. Yeah, Lions are. Uh, and the Packers are. Uh, oh no, 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 no. Well, Dad, shall we dig more into our episode here? Uh, do you want to give us a plot summary for this episode? Sure. In Zodiac, director David Fincher crafts a meticulously layered thriller that unravels the cryptic enigma of the Zodiac Killer and a real-life serial murderer who terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 1960s and early 1970s. The film weaves together the lives of three individuals, a tenacious newspaper cartoonist, Jake Gyllenhaal, a relentless detective, Mark Ruffalo, and a brilliant but tormented crime reporter, Robert Downey Jr., all united in their pursuit of the elusive Zodiac. Fincher masterfully captures the haunting atmosphere of the era, immersing the audience in a world of paranoia and uncertainty. The film also expertly navigates the shifting dynamics between obsession, professional duty, and personal sacrifice as the characters become entangled in the web of the Zodiac's cryptic messages and gruesome crimes. Gyllenhaal delivers a compelling performance as the cartoonist turned amateur sleuth, conveying the psychological toll of an obsession that threatens to consume him. 
Ruffalo brings a gritty authenticity to his role, reflecting the frustration and determination of law enforcement. And Downey injects a dose of wit and charisma into the mix, embodying the pitfalls of journalistic ambition. Zodiac transcends the conventions of a traditional crime thriller, delving into the psychological toll of an unsolved mystery on those who dedicate their lives to solving it. It's a chilling exploration of the human cost of obsession and the lingering shadows of unresolved mysteries. Thank you. Did you know? The Zodiac case was reopened after the release of the film. Did you know? The murder victims' costumes were meticulously recreated from forensic evidence that was lent to the production. Did you know? Because he wanted the film to be as accurate as possible, David Fincher decided not to depict any of the alleged Zodiac murders for which there were no surviving victims or witnesses. Thus, the Zodiac's first confirmed attack, the murders on Lake Herman Road, was excluded from the film, since there were no surviving victims to corroborate details. The creators thus decided to open the film with the 4th of July murders, considered to be the Zodiac's second double murders. Did you know? Robert Graysmith and Paul Avery were not actually friends. Their relationship is fictionalized for the film. Did you know? Trees had to be helicoptered in to the Lake Berryessa location, as the area had changed substantially since 1969, and David Fincher wanted it to resemble the murder site as closely as possible. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 192nd episode, we discuss another March Brothers film in Duck Soup, celebrating its 90th anniversary this year. Directed by Leo McCary, written by Burt Calmer, Harry Ruby, Arthur Sheepman, and Nate Perrin, music by Burt Calmer and Harry Ruby, Starring Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo Marx. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You are on standby now. Impressive. I'm ready to go. All right. So we are on to the Stanley rubric. Again, if uh, you want to listen for all of the middle categories to our regular show, I would suggest going back to the original episode. It will be in the note descriptions, so you can go right there to either the website or uh, you can just find it regularly. I believe it was episode 20 from our first season. But we are going to reapply the Stanley rubric to Zodiac here. First up is Legacy. Our original Legacy score averaged out by three people was 6.3 at the time. Who would like to lead off first with their suggestion uh, with whether we got it right or not? Now, you, you didn't combine them, right? At the time, we did not. Correct. Because that was before we started dividing the category. Yeah. I think 6.3 is a little low, just overall. I don't think it's super low. I would have it, if we weren't splitting it into two and just doing it one, I would have it somewhere between seven and eight in that range. So I think it's slightly low, but not uh, not way off. So you're starting at a 7.5. Okay. Dad? I had industry as a 4 simply because I did, I do feel that this kind of led into a broader category. For the public, I went with a 3, and I went with a 3 only because, yeah, it didn't do, it was the 65th film or something, but I think this had some legs on like HBO and home rentals and such. 
So I went a little higher. So I went with a seven overall, but I can't I can't go higher than that. Okay, so we have a seven and a seven point five. I think this might end up being a little bit easier then because I thought we had it pretty close. When I did my scoring for this, I had a three for the industry. I think I may be a little bit low on that in talking about it now for the last half an hour or so. But I only have a 3.5 for the audience. I don't think this has the same staying power. When you ask people, have you seen a David Fincher film? Most people, they're going to say Fight Club or Seven or The Social Network. You might even get like a Gone Girl. This is something that I just don't think a lot of people have gone out and seen. Even though it's a little bit more recent, it's only 2007. I just, I don't know what the audience is necessarily for this film. I think it's a little bit more popular maybe with the industry and the critics who love this movie. But I'm just not sure I'm there to accept that this is something that is applying to a wider audience that would be deserving of a four. So I'm, I originally had a 6.5, which is just slightly ahead of our original 6.3, but I'm willing to negotiate from that point. I mean, right now, if we went with a median point, we'd all be at about a seven. Well, I am at seven. I can come down to seven. I don't have an issue with it. I can come up to a seven. All right. So that's a good start. Where is this for you guys in your uh, Fincher rankings? I mean, I don't need an exact list, but is this like towards the top for you? Middle? Lower? I would put it in a tier system. I would have this in the middle tier. I think this is a very good film, but it doesn't rise to the level of something like Seven or Social Network for me, which I think are his two best films. I would tend to agree, although I have not seen Fight Club. I know that's a thing that I have to remedy at some point, but... uh... Corn dog's going to kick your ass. Well, just relax. That is the episode he volunteered for next year, and uh, it is on the list. I think about a year from now. He loves that movie. I it's I think it's my second favorite Fincher, I think. I don't have the exact list in front of me. Social Network is number one with a bullet, but I think Zodiac's probably my second favorite of his. And personally, I think I'd be willing, if given another view, uh, to put the killer right just below this like i don't think he's quite at the social network or seven those are much more entertaining films but i think it's like right there like i like the killer more than i enjoyed watching zodiac interesting well i'm 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 looking forward to watching the killer especially considering that the new york times said it was boring i've now gotten to the point where whatever the critics of the new york times and it doesn't matter i mean a.o scott's no longer movie critic they get two different people they just try to find what the most acerbic, negative, nasty people they can ever put to watch a film. And then they must like have them sit on thumbtacks so that they really get angry about every film they see. Because I, I don't know what they ever like. Fuck them. Yeah, well, they're making a hell of a lot of money doing it. <laughs> It'd be nice. I suppose I could go really negative for several million dollars. It wouldn't be that far of a stretch for me. Yeah, you'd only have to, what, ramp it up, oh, maybe an eighth of a turn? (laughs) I'm the opposite. I come out of a movie, I'm like, oh, that was awesome. I enjoy everything I see in the theater. I have so much fun in movies. And then when I think about it, I'm like, oh, it actually kind of sucked, but that's fine. (laughs) Let's go to impact and significance then. Our original score on this category was a 3.5. I'll just say that it is a little bit low for me. 
even though it placed as the number 65 film on a particular year and was below Fred Claus, I do think that <laughs> hey now. just based on the critic scores that it was like inside their top 10, it probably should be raised up just slightly. So I have a three for the critics. I only have about a two and a half for the audience. Again, within that first five years, I think there is a certain group of people that saw this, but it wasn't like an overwhelming success by any metric. And if it made back its money, I think that's a decent accomplishment for as wide ranging as this film tends to be and as meticulous as Fincher's films tend to be. I mean, if it really got to the $85 million budget and only made 83 at the box office, oof. Uh, but I go for a 5.5 as my starting point. I So for industry, I would put it at a three and a half. I think it has made an impact. You look at the cast, in particular those three. I mean, the, I know Downey Jr. was, I'm sure, already cast as Iron Man before this came out. But still, like he exploded, and this was part of it. Like If you ask anyone what's your favorite RDJ movie outside of Iron Man, I think this is going to be mentioned. Maybe not someone's favorite, but I think it'll be mentioned. Um, Ruffalo and Gyllenhaal both exploded and you know it's inspired movies like the Batman which I think is one of the best superhero movies in a very long time was heavily inspired by Zodiac I mean the director said it Riddler is basically Zodiac in that movie so I, I think it's had some impact in the industry so I'm in three and a half there public I would say a three hard to put too high with a 65th ranking it's tough even though I adore Fred Claus it's tough so uh you are at a seven uh 6.5 6.5. Okay. And uh, let me just ask this follow-up. Can you name any other Robert Downey Jr. movie that isn't Iron Man, Sherlock Holmes, or Dr. Doolittle? Due date, he's very good in. Oppenheimer, he's going okay. to win an Oscar in in a couple months. Yes. Chaplin, he was nominated for an Oscar. What's the film he did with Galifianakis? Due, due date. date. Was that Due Date? Okay. Yeah. I like that film. I had forgotten about that film entirely. That's a funny one. Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder. Oh, yeah. Another one I forgot. Okay. So there's a lot more variety, but I thought my original point was going to be not many people are going to be able to name Good Night and Good Luck. He was great in Good Night and Good Luck. He had a small part. It was basically his first film out of rehab. Actually, no. No, his first uh, film out of that was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Okay. Where he had a starring role with Shane Black. Okay. I know oh. that there was still a lot of concern that he would relapse and cause cost overruns and everything else, scheduling problems. But it's interesting after that, like this character in Zodiac, his character in Iron Man are both like alcoholics. It's really interesting that after all the issues he had, he was so willing to jump into roles like that. I feel like a lot of actors might be self-conscious and try to avoid that at all costs. And he was just like, hey, I'll do it, whatever. I'll portray myself like that. I think that's cool. Eh, self-awareness and steering into this kid sometimes works for people. Can't wait to see what Ezra Miller does. Can't wait. Well, I was going <laughs> to say it's why I'm willing to make fun of myself all the time on this program. Oh, there you go. I'll make fun of you too, so it works. Yeah, I know. <laughs> all right, Dad, we have a 5.5 and a 6.5 so far. Where do you come down? Industry is 2.5. All of the, the actors in here had been doing other things. And I don't think it really advanced their careers that much, especially for a film that was 65th in box office. It's not like they're going, well, now we know Mark Ruffalo can carry a film. No. And so I went with a 2.5 for industry. 
And for the public, 65th. 65th. We don't need to say much more than 65th and go with a 2. So I'm at 4.5. Now, I could possibly come up some, but I'm having a problem coming up to the lofty heights of both of you. So apparently I'm the median point of 5.5. You, you're not even willing to negotiate up to that point? Boy, give me a reason why I should. I think you're too low on the industry, specifically because of the amount of top 10 lists that it was in, and the fact that after this movie had been around for a while, we have multiple publications that are voting it within like a list of the top 30 movies of the 20th century, or excuse me, 21st century so far. I do think there is an industry-wide recognition of how good the film is, even if the public isn't necessarily on board. And that's where I came up slightly, because I don't think I would have been too, too far off from you originally until we started kind of talking about it a little bit more and its influences on other industry types, even if it doesn't have the same effect on the public at large. You said it was 12th? Was that what it was voted as the 12th greatest movie of this century? Uh, I can look back in my notes. That's, I mean, I like this movie. That seems a little high. I haven't done the, I haven't done the list, but also for reference point, I just looked it up. The 65th highest grossing film this year is another Jake Gyllenhaal film. Anyone have a guess on what it might be? No. It's Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, a film I actually quite liked. Uh, that is the 65th highest grossing film this year. So okay, go Jake. Jake crushing it. Okay. So. Is that enough to move you a little bit? Yeah, it was 12th, by the way, for the BBC about seven years ago. Wow, that's high. I do think it comes before some other like great movies of the 21st century, given that I think that's before like La La Land, Moonlight, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There were a lot of really great films to the back half of the 2010s, if you ask me. Oh, it was voted 12th back then before those yeah. movies came out? Oh, okay, that makes sense. I can come up. I'll go with an extra half point for the industry. The public, I'm kind of stuck at that. So I'm now up to uh, five. So trying to get me higher if you want. I'll go down to a 5.5. I'll meet Tom. All right. Give me some rationale of why I should go to 5.5. Because It I mean, did I've inspire got... the Batman. I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but like that was a really good movie. Okay. So what's your total score for the industry side of it? Three. I mean, that's what I'm at. I, I just went with a median point for the 2.5. I, I don't think this was a terribly unseen movie. I mean, $83 million for something of this variety is like gangbusters. I mean... I don't know about that. <laughs> not every R-rated, based on historical accounts thriller, is going to make $950 million because it was paired with Barbie in a particular year. <laughs> true i don't know i would say gangbusters i would say it didn't do terribly but yeah <sighs> all right i'll go with 5.5 reluctantly but i'll go simply to get off this Ooh, that, the thought of my dad just getting off of something anyway let's get to novelty then our original novelty score was a 5.8 Honestly, the more that I thought about this, I think we were a little bit too high. It's not novel as a concept. It may be a little novel in tone. And I'm not sure I even agree that it would be novel in execution. So 
I think my starting point is at a five, but I'm willing to listen to arguments here. Well, I'm going to agree with you because I had a little higher myself until I started thinking after I did the numbers earlier today and remembered, oh, yeah, I remember watching uh, Helter Skelter. And I remember some of the other films that were done about true crimes and such. I don't think that this is that far off from Blue Velvet, although it's true, this, the, this type of background and what was going on. I mean, so there were fictionalized accounts that were going on that were of similar ilk. And so I don't think it was that novel. So I'm going to go down. I was originally going to go down to your five oh, but on my own, but uh, I like your five for that reason as well. And I'll agree with you. All right. I, uh, I went with a six. I don't think it's super novel. I agree. But I also think it's, I agree with the tone that it, it is slightly different. Now I haven't seen a ton of the older stuff on this true crime wave, but I do feel like the tone, you know, it's a very Fincher tone and it, I think it does set up kind of where we are at now. Like I mentioned earlier, where people are, don't care about what's happening. They don't care about the crime. They care about, are we smart? Am I smart enough to figure it out? Can I solve the mystery? And I think this kind of started that because, like I said, Hall doesn't care about stopping murders. He wants to prove that he's smarter than everyone and can figure it out. So I think this kind of kicked off that wave that we're in now. So I went to six, uh, but I can meet you at a five because I agree. It's, it wasn't the first. So let me just throw out a bunch of well-known movies, both before and after this film, and see if they match the tone before or after. Okay. So first one, In Cold Blood from 68. I would say that has probably the closest in tone and meticulousness to this film. Foxcatcher, after this film, but you can kind of see the impact. Catch Me If You Can, I think this is that's a completely different tone, a completely different movie, a completely different thriller. It has the sentimentality of Spielberg. It's not nearly as dark as this film. And it's more following the slightly fictionalized version, the narratives around those people instead of the people that are trying to catch the actual criminal. Let's throw in Wolf of Wall Street is after that. I, I think that has a slightly different tone. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's in this vein. Dog Day Afternoon different tone entirely. It's more following the specific people instead of the people trying to catch them. French Connection, it's following the cops trying to catch them, but I I still don't think it's in the, the quite the gritty way this is done. All the President's Men. Huh? I think it's a much brighter tone because it's dealing with a less difficult subject matter, but I would say it's still a true crime film and it's investigative. Yep. JFK. Boy, that's, that one's different by a lot. Okay. The Untouchables? It's not close to this tone. No. Well, I'm willing to go up to a 5.5. And you're already willing to come down to a 5. I, I just wonder if there's anything to push this up slightly. I think it is the tone and who they're focusing on, the kind of point of view of the story as opposed to whether it's just a true crime movie. I do think there is some variation within that. Yeah. A lot of the movies you just mentioned, the main character is the person doing the crime. Yeah. And this is not that. So, but yeah, I'm willing to, I'm willing to go with a, 
five or five point five, whatever you guys, whatever Tom decides. I think five point five is fine, but it's not that different from our original score of five point eight. Yeah, and so we're within pretty reasonable margins of what we scored before. But before we get on to classicness, let's take our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this December, Adam and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering Iron Man 3 from 2013. Don't miss out, make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. All right, we left off at Classicness. The original score from our first episode was a 7.7. I'm going to say I think we were low. I won't give my final number yet. I'll pass that off to one of you, but I think we were low. Dana, you can kick it off. I feel like you're going to be the lowest. I am going to be the lowest. I went with a 7, which is the midpoint or the starting point. I didn't find any reason to go up, and I found no reason to go down. So tell me why I'm wrong. All right. Well, I had a nine for this. This is where I went pretty high in this category. I, I think this movie is really great. Um, as as uh, the BBC, you know, the, I don't think it's the 12th best movie this century, but it's a very good one. Um, it's up there. And not to spoil the Revisionist Almanac podcast, but who knows when we get to 2007, we'll probably be canceled long before then. So I'll give away a little bit. Zodiac's going to be pretty high up there on my uh, best picture rankings for that year. Um, it's that and No Country for Old Men. Oh, that's as much as I'll say. Those are my top two for that year. But uh, I, I think this movie is really great. The acting is awesome. Robert Downey Jr. is electric in this movie. I, I, I think it's a nine. And I think it's really cool. The killer, the killer scenes in particular are awesome. They're really chilling and they're really captivating. I think it's a really good movie. So I went a nine. All right. So... Because you went with the baseline seven, I'll rule out a few of the things that would be potential negatives. One, diversity doesn't really apply in this film particularly because it's based on the real life people who are involved who just all happen to be men. So your ability to diversify the cast is extremely limited, both on a gender role and on like a uh, racial role as well. I'll admit that, I mean, to put in somebody for gender or race into this formula would almost be insulting and require a deduction, not an, an, a rise in the number. Two, Fincher is always meticulous about how he makes his movies, but the painstaking efforts with which he did go to recreate a lot of the crime history, be respectable to the victims, as well as any details that he could possibly do, even to the exclusion of putting things into the film that probably on most people would have been put in, but he didn't want to have anything viewed as potentially inaccurate. So he left out stuff. I think that is going over and above what you need to where there could be even the remotest chance of controversy where he got something wrong in the film and was promoting the wrong details. And the thing that really puts me over the edge and why I think this is a nine as well, is this gets the tone 
and the obsession correct with where we're at now with this as an entertainment form. It's kind of prescient in being ahead of time with where the public wanted to be at with a lot of these serial killer shows and movies and podcasts, etc. And so for being somewhat ahead of that, even though it was not novel, it was not a novel true crime story, it still ages well because this is an obsession of the wide general public right now. And this movie feels like it could be made today. Like, like this feels like a movie that would be made by Apple TV today and distributed and, and put up for Oscars. Um, so I think that should count too towards its classicness. I'll agree with that point because it did dawn on me that this film, if you're talking classicness, is this film, would it have released in its present format today be at all a problem? No. So if that's part of the definition of classicness, I'll agree with that. So you're both at a nine. Would you be willing to go to an 8.5? I know that's a far bridge to cross for you, but. I'll go to 8.5. You've made enough points. Let's go. See, and Adam, you thought this was going to be much more contentious than it's been so far. Oh, just you wait. We've got two categories left, and one of them isn't even up to us. So we have rewatchability left for us to kind of compromise on. Our original score on that one was a 5.3, and I think we were a little high. Wow. So as entertaining as Fincher films can often be, and I enjoy Seven, I have no problem rewatching that. Social Network is very easy to rewatch. It's very kinetic. It's a straightforward run, even though, is that two hours or two and a half hours? I forget. Oof, that's... It doesn't drag at all because of the dialogue and how quickly he added stuff together. I always feel like the last hour to 45 minutes of this movie really starts to drag for me. When it really gets into the Jake Gyllenhaal concentrated parts instead of what the actual like criminal background and setting up all of the stuff that had been happening, the investigative parts. When we're getting into the like conspiracy theory type stuff, it just kind of seems to lose the thread a little bit for me and it it loses some of its momentum. It drags a bit. And also, I just don't find myself putting this film back on. So even if we're going to apply the Kieran test, which I'll admit, since we started applying it, my rewatchability scores have gone considerably lower than before we started using it. Fucking Kieran. Yeah. I think <laughs> I have not put on this film since we originally watched it like four mm-hmm. years ago or three years ago for the show. So if that's going to be your test, I have to have it like a 1.5. I don't think I would have a problem leaving it on, but where are you ever going to just stumble across watching this film anymore? It's not like it's a cable watch. It's an R-rated crime thriller. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I think I was at a four. Yeah, a four. Wow. That's pretty low. That's pretty low. I, uh, I went with a six. I totally agree with you. In that, this movie is what, two and a half hours? Yeah, I think 2.45 or so. I would say the the first hour, hour 15, is great. And I would have it a very high rewatchability. As soon as Downey, his character kind of splits, and we see him once in that one scene after that, the movie goes pretty downhill. And I think part of that is no Downey, and it really relies a lot on Gyllenhaal, and Gyllenhaal's character just isn't as interesting. 
And also the thing with the killer, it's just so obvious that he's the guy. And I feel like you just lose so much momentum, even though they're trying to play it off as like, oh, maybe it isn't. It's like, it clearly is. There's no way it isn't him. So I feel like that loses momentum as well. And not every Fincher movie can have a rowboat scene with no dialogue, with blaring Christmas music to pick it up halfway through. So that's not a fair standard, Tom. Come on. Dirty pool right there. (laughs) It's a great scene. So I I gave it a six. And um, it's not very quotable either, which hurts it. Um, Before you sent me the outline for this pod, I thought we were doing like quotes and stuff. And I really struggled to come up with best quotes. Um, There are a couple quippy one-liners, but really there's nothing to quote. So um, I think the four might be a little low, but uh, I went with a six. I came in at a five. I, I feel we'll just probably settle on that then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not something I would necessarily turn off. I'm not going to go out of my way to watch it again. I mean, of the Fincher films, this would probably be one that I would rewatch least simply because of the subject matter. And besides, Social Network, the one thing Social Network taught you is have JT play you because all of a sudden you're now a rock star in real life. So that's just, <laughs> if my life story is ever told, I want JT to play me. A million isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion. <laughs> anyway, I can't, I, I I think five is about the sweet spot for me. I'm really having a hard time. I don't necessarily want to go lower, but I don't feel I should really like to go much higher. So since I'm in the middle, what do I need to convince you to? No, I'm fine with the five. I'm good with a five. Yeah, this is a movie. I wouldn't shut it off the first hour, 15, if it's on. After that point, I definitely, if I had anything to do, I would be like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to finish it. I've added my own little quip to the rewatchability factor or consideration, which is how many times did I look at my watch? When we got to the Gyllenhaal part, I'm looking at my watch going, how much longer is this? And I did that twice. So to me, that that marks it down a point. So that's where I came in with the five because it kind of got boring. I like the idea of everyone coming up with their own test for rewatchability. You should do that, Tom. You should incorporate that every episode. Someone has to come up with a test. Mine would be the bathroom test. If you get a, if you have to go to the bathroom, do you pause it or do you just get up and go? That's a good one. <laughs> it's not the worst one I've heard. Yeah. All right. So for audience score, then, is our remaining category. We had an originally 7.7 based only on Rotten Tomatoes. We had not incorporated Google yet on audience score. So adding in that we still have a 77% for Rotten Tomato users, but we had an 89% for Google users. So we're now at an 8.3. So to recap all of the categories, we went from a 6.3 original legacy score to a 7. We went from a 3.5 impact and significant score to a 5.5. We went slightly down on novelty from 5.8 to 5.5. We went up on classicness from 7.7 to 8.5. We went slightly down on rewatchability from 5.3 to a 5. And we went slightly up on audience score from 7.7 to 8.3. Our original score on this episode or on this movie was a 36.3 and our new score is a 39.8 and where do you think that places or how many spots do you think it moved on the list 22 21 oh you prices righted me you bastard oh 
So it officially moves from 167 all the way up to 152. Damn you. So I think that's 25 spots. No, it's 15. Yeah. You have to be right on without going over. So I think both of you, unfortunately, were wrong. If you disagreed with any of our scoring on this, you can certainly email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our contact information on the website, ronniedickenstudios.com backslash gmotepodcast, or hit us up on any of our socials at gmotepodcast on Instagram, X, Letterboxd, and TikTok, which Adam finds funny. I do. I do. We got to get Dana on the TikTok. We got to have him TikToking. Oh, I've been on TikTok. I've actually done promotions. You you have no idea how much Dana is on TikTok. Oh my god, I've never even had TikTok. I've never once gotten on that app. He is obsessed, addicted to TikTok. Wow, look at you. Well, it's it's great because the uh, once you start tagging what you like, I don't have the little girls dancing on there anymore and all the weird stuff i get stuff that i enjoy so yeah look at that you communists look at that oh uh, yeah <laughs> he's been called worst yeah <laughs> wouldn't be the first time i've been called a communist this week yeah anyway since we did remaining questions in the original episode we'll skip that as well and we'll just go to our quick in memoriam for the week dad do we have anyone to remember this week yes Suzanne Shepard, 89, American actress, was in The Sopranos, Goodfellas, and Requiem for a Dream. Annabelle Giles, 64, British actress and TV presenter, Razzmatazz, Riders, and Posh Frocks and New Trousers with Sarah Green. And Joss Auckland, 95, British actor, was in the movie White Mischief, and Lethal Weapon 2, as well as playing Hans in The Mighty Ducks. Yeah, he's most known as playing Hans in The Mighty Ducks movies from when I was a kid, well before Adam's generation was born. Yes, yeah, well before. Yes. Zoomer. (laughs) So we remember these here fondly for their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's finish up here. Adam, your first time on the revisit version of the podcast. What did you think? I liked it. I liked it. I uh, I, I enjoy the uh, the uh, bartering system we got here. Not just averaging the scores, but debating and coming together on an agreement. I like that. It feels a little more you know, low key too, which I which I dig. Um, that might just be Thanksgiving, and 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 Tom is blasted already. But you know, it's uh, you know it's. It's a good vibe. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Well, thanks. We only went to this, was it earlier this year when we did Goodfellas? I think we started to do the compromise scores as opposed to the average. But I do think it gives it a different feel. We've been doing a few revisits every year now for about three years. But I do think we'll have to revisit some of our other revisits now that we're doing kind of the compromise system. So Back to the Future is probably back on the table somewhere. I think we could do a few. I think we could do a few more revisits and potentially have them as bonus material, especially if they're a little bit shorter episodes. Yes. 
You can put them on TikTok. Or Pantheon. Pantheon? Patreon? Or Patreon, excuse me. <laughs> I thought that's what you meant. Yeah, okay. uh, Our Pantheon of directors is a different episode for next year. Patreon, excuse me. But I want to say we have like six or seven revisits to do next year. And I think we have at least two different tiebreaker episodes coming. Or OnlyFans. I'm sure Dana probably already Ooh, got an account. You go. So, you know, we can just oh, yeah. load them, upload them right onto there. Be good to go. Yeah. Tease a few feet, a uh, few feet images every now and then. Good to go. Yeah, it works. All right. So any final thoughts for the week from any of you? What's uh, what's your guys go to uh, go to plate? What does your plate look like on Thanksgiving? We're recording this the night before. I think it's probably coming out the week after Thanksgiving, right? But uh, yes, correct. What's uh, what does your plate look like when you sit down at the table? What's on it? So I'm probably going white meat. I'm not a big dark meat guy, even though the white meat can be dried out a little bit more. I just I've never been a big dark meat guy. I usually go for at least a good spoonful of both sets of potatoes because my mother makes both sweet and regular mashed potatoes, especially if she puts it in like the garlic, sour cream, uh, and cheddar mashed potatoes. Those are usually pretty good. I don't load up heavy on the potatoes because otherwise you can't enjoy everything collectively. We have a family recipe as opposed to regular cranberry salad called Yifna. Uh, It's a Eastern European dish that uh, has like a cracker substitute in there as well as It's like a whipped topping uh, to go along with the cranberry sauce. So it's a little bit more of a dessert or salad type uh, as opposed to just cranberry salad, which I think can get a little tart for my taste. This is a little bit more enjoyable, especially since she started making it probably about a decade ago with real whipped cream that she makes. She also uses a layer of cream cheese in it now. Oh, see, I was unaware of that. Yes. Okay. Uh, And I don't know if she's making Heath Bar salad, but that's usually a go-to. She has baked corn, Mm -hmm. which is always a go-to for us. I'm not a gravy guy. I know for going for the white meat, I probably should be, but I just, I really don't care about gravy at all. And then finish off whenever I've digested and taken a nice nap, usually during the cowboy game, because either they're getting slaughtered or they're slaughtering somebody else. Those games usually are never that close. Then uh, we'll do some type of pie. And it's usually our choices of whichever way you say pecan, pecan, pecan or whatever or pumpkin and i probably usually go for one of each nice for me i'm dark meat baked corn i absolutely love stuffing i always have uh the stuffing is the one that my grandmother made i make my wife uh learn how to make it to me it's awesome and nobody else in the family likes it so i usually end up with the bowl in front of me and so I usually have two heaping helpings of it. Um, you can have the potatoes. I really am not a potatoes fan. I think they're kind of bland and tasteless. Much like Tom. Yes. Uh, sweet potatoes. <laughs> uh, again, the Ifna is, is really good. She's making uh, more of the rolls. She got a hold of a recipe that mimics Texas Roadhouse rolls. Oh, my God. And so uh, they're pretty darn close. And those will and be she on the even has the cinnamon butter for it. Oh, yes. oh my God. Heavy, heavy breathing sounds. Oh, my yes. God. So, and for you? All right. Well, I'm actually uh, in lockstep with you here, Dana, mostly. Um, I always start with a salad, a little of mouge bouge to get my, my day going off on the right track. And then I get some turkey. I'm a white meat guy myself. Uh, I'm not a big turkey guy at all. So I don't get a lot 
Um, but I put a little bit on there, get some mac and cheese. Love me some stuffing. Love me some food coming out of a turkey's anus. Tell you what, it is delicious. Um, <laughs> what a way to phrase it. You just shove it up there and then you just pull it out. It's fantastic. I think I'll use that tomorrow as a reasoning not to eat any of it. I don't, I don't need the butt drippings. You're just rubbing it in. All sorts of rubbing it in. So I get that. Uh, I, I love me some corn. So I get that. I have a few baked onions and then a few slices of baked onion, not a few whole baked onions. That would be preposterous. <laughs> I don't do potato at all. I'm not a big potato guy in the mashed form. But uh, so that's that's the plate. And then I don't like pie mostly. I do like Toll House pie. So I will rock a slice or two of Toll House pie after dinner. But uh, yeah. Just a tip. My uh, I, Wally bought me two years ago master class oh yeah and so we watched uh, both of the extensive cooking shows from gordon ramsay um he uses a ricer to make his mashed potatoes and actually for mashed potatoes which i've never really liked they're actually pretty decent when you do them the way he does they're much lighter and they have more taste and flavor to them than the interesting typical mashed potatoes which tend to be kind of big clumps yeah but these actually are edible so as far as i'm concerned and i forgot the green bean casserole with the uh french onion on top if the onions get crispy yes like otherwise it gets a little slimy uh but yes if you have a nice uh, nice crunch to it i don't mind that and nothing says thanksgiving dinner better than either a really good glass of heavy dark red wine or just pass that up and just have the bourbon there you go love to hear it a big chocolate milk guy myself on thanksgiving i'll take a half gallon down and adam what political discussions shall you be having tomorrow oh oh um well you know the huge uh, no, I don't, my family doesn't really talk politics much. Do you guys have anything you watch? Any like go-to movies or shows that you watch on Thanksgiving? Or is it just football all day? Usually football all day, but then given our schedule and the rest of it, like we don't have a lot of go-to things that we always have to watch on certain holidays or anything like that. My sister usually requests It's a Wonderful Life for Christmas, and my dad will request Scrooged. But other than that, there aren't any go-to holiday movies. So we usually sit down with something new or try and get something different in maybe a show, but not really. You would love actually. Yeah, but I watch that on my own. I don't make anybody else sit and watch it. I don't mind watching it. Yeah, we do because my family is usually together for the Lions game and the Cowboys game, and then we go we, we go our separate ways for the night game. So I usually have the night game on one TV and the other TV, I do all the episodes, uh, all the Thanksgiving episodes on Bob's burgers. Cause that's kind of like the calling card of the show is the Thanksgiving episodes. So I do all those. There's like 12 of them and I just binge those one after the other. And it's fantastic. I can honestly say I've never seen an episode. No, it's my favorite animated show ever. I'm not a big animated TV guy, um, but it's my favorite ever. It's hilarious. Well, I think that's a good place to cut it for the week. Oh, I just have one thing I want to add. For our listeners, if you have not listened to Tom's bonus episode of his oh, yes. review of Batman and Robin, 
you're missing a real treasure. The palpable irritation of having to sit through and analyze this movie is so wonderful. It's just, he sounds so anxious, irritated, and uncomfortable that it gave me great joy. And I listened to it with my wife while we were riding up for some business out of town. And we both just sat and just reveled in his uncomfortableness. Oh, the part that gets me is, is that they were actively planning, had this movie been successful, to cast Coolio as Scarecrow in the following film. That's, <laughs> that's the God. detail that just floors me. Who in their right mind was doing the casting if that was a, an active choice? What have we missed out on? Oh, my God. The things we could have had. The places we could have gone. Ugh. So before we go, thank you for being on with us as usual, Adam. Uh, anything you would like to self-promote? Any books, short films that you're coming out with? Or uh, any movie clips that we need to show here on, on the episode? Trailers? Um, trying to think. Do you have any artwork being sold at a, a local establishment? <laughs> I, I don't have any artwork. I, I am working on some writing stuff, so you never know. Look out in the next three to five years. Um, there could be a book coming. Who knows? But uh, for right now, things you can do, you can follow me on Twitter, formerly known as X, uh, at the Circuitverse, and at Rev Almanac. It does not stand for Revolutionist Almanac, which I want to say every time I say the name. It stands for Revisionist Almanac, which we're doing oscars revisionary stuff going back and redoing them so go follow those on twitter have a lot of lists a lot of lists so many lists um and you can check out podcasts if you like sports combining with movies we do movie madness every month and uh we just did musical movie madness this month had a lot of fun with it christmas movie madness coming next month so go check all that stuff out the streaming circuit on spotify and follow us on twitter and the revisionist element x first episode is coming out in january Yes, yes. The 2010 Oscars, the uh, as we the aforementioned social network, will be heavily featured by one of us, at least, in that episode. Um, hopefully three, but never know. And then, Tom, you're coming on early on in the, in the pod, I think, to do 1998. Yeah, I think that uh, I heard you have a really great guest coming on for your second episode. I, I think I might have heard that. Yes, Valerie. Val's coming on. Can't wait for her. I thought that was your third episode, but that's okay. It is. Yeah, you're the second. I just didn't want to didn't want to give you that. So. Known to our <laughs> podcast as VP Morris, but fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Not that I care, but where is your husband? Why, he's dead. I bet he's just using that as an excuse. I was with him to the very end. No wonder he passed away. Next week for our 192nd episode, we discuss another Marx Brother film in Duck Soup, celebrating its 90th anniversary this year. Directed by Leo McCary, written by Burt Kelmar, Harry Ruby, Arthur Sheepman, and Nat Perrin. Music by Burt Kelmar and Harry Ruby. Starring Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo Marx. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniehenkinsstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. 
or find us on Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Gmail Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ron Deckett Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 